Hi, and welcome to the first episode of World Governments Explained. I'm Glenn Gallagher. If you listen to the trailer, then you already know what this podcast is about and why I decided to make it. And if you didn't, that's okay too, because I'm going to summarize it at the beginning of every show. Each episode, I'll choose a different country and explain how its political system works in less than an hour. It's that simple. I mentioned in the trailer that season one will cover the five countries with permanent seats on the UN Security Council, which are the United States, the United Kingdom, France, Russia, and China. In this episode, I'm going to start off with the political system of the United States of America. Before we dive into any specifics about how the US government works, I want to take a step back and talk about government in general for a second. A lot of times, People use the term government to refer to the group or person that holds executive power in a country at a given time. Political parties like Democrats and Republicans, or political leaders like Boris Johnson, Vladimir Putin, and Xi Jinping get used interchangeably with their country's government. While that's certainly one way to talk about governments, I want to clarify that when I talk about government during this episode, What I'm referring to are the overarching systems and structures that have the official power to govern in American society. The government in the U.S. is the means by which society organizes and allocates power to accomplish collective goals and provide benefits and public services to its people. With that in mind, let's shift focus to the U.S. government. You may have heard a number of terms used to describe what type of government exists in the United States. Some people call it a democracy, others call it a republic, and sometimes people combine those two terms and call it a democratic republic. While none of those terms are technically incorrect, they lack a certain nuance that gets at the heart of how the U.S. government functions and how Americans think about and interact with their government. Here's a quick overview of the relationship most Americans have with the government. Through elections, Americans can vote for individuals to represent them in different parts of the government. Those representatives make laws and carry out the laws in ways that impact the people who voted them into office. But just because representatives get elected to government positions, that doesn't mean they can just do whatever they want. What they're allowed to do while in office is established in the U.S. Constitution, which is the law of the land. Because of this setup, I find the most appropriate way to describe the U.S. government is that it's a federal, democratic, constitutional republic. Let's break down each part of that to understand why I think of it as a federal, democratic, constitutional republic. The U.S. government is federal because, well, a federal system is one that splits power between a large national government and smaller state governments. And the states in a federal system are all connected to one another by the national government. In the US, each of the 50 states has its own government that can make and enforce laws within the state. At the same time, the 50 states remain connected to each other by the national federal government and are subject to the federal government's decisions. So that's why the US is a federal system. Next, it's democratic because the American people select their government officials through a democratic voting process. It's constitutional Because what the elected government officials are allowed to do while they're in office is legally set forth in the Constitution. And it's a republic because, by definition, in a republic, the people don't govern directly. Instead, 
They elect representatives to make decisions and pass laws on their behalf. So that's why I call the United States a federal, democratic, constitutional republic. Now that we know what type of government exists in the U.S., let's talk about how it's structured. The U.S. government consists of three branches, a legislative branch, an executive branch, and a judicial branch. If we were to zoom out as far as we could and summarize what the three branches of government do, it would go something like this. The legislative branch makes the laws, the executive branch carries out the laws, and the judicial branch interprets the laws and applies them to real-world scenarios. There. Now we know everything there is to know about the U.S. government. Episode done, right? Not quite. There's a lot that goes into how each branch of government operates and how the three branches interact with each other. So let's start by looking at the legislative branch, which is also called Congress. As I said before, at a very high level, the main role of Congress is to make the laws in the United States. Congress is made up of two parts, which are called houses. One house is the Senate, and the other is called the House of Representatives. When Americans go to the ballot box to vote for who will represent them in the government, two of the positions they vote for are senators and members of the House of Representatives. Senators and members of the House are typically from either the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, which are the primary political groups in the United States. So why is Congress broken into two separate houses? And how do the Senate and House of Representatives actually make laws? Well, in order for any law to get passed, both parts of Congress, so both the Senate and the House of Representatives, need to agree on the law and vote to approve it. And the reason Congress's power is distributed into two parts like this is to balance the interests of both the small states and the large states. In the Senate, each state has an equal voice when passing legislation. That's because each state gets two senators. Since there's 50 states, that means there's 100 senators in total. Senators serve rotating six-year terms, which means that every two years, about a third of the Senate is up for re-election. And in the House of Representatives, representation amongst the states is based on the size of each state's population. So states like California and Texas with big populations have more representatives than smaller states, like Wyoming and Montana. In total, there are 435 members of the House of Representatives, and all members serve two-year terms, which means that every two years, all 435 seats in the House of Representatives are up for re-election. So, just to summarize, in the Senate, every state has an equal voice, and in the House of Representatives, bigger states have bigger voices. But why is Congress set up this way? Let's use our imaginations for a minute and think about what would happen if the U.S. only had two states. Let's call them State A and State B. And for this example, let's assume State A has a population of 10 million people and State B only has a population of 1 million people. So our fictional two-state country has a total population of 11 million people. Now, let's consider two scenarios for how laws could be made in this country. In the first scenario, the power to make laws is based entirely on population size. If that were the case, then state A, the one with 10 million people, can essentially make whatever laws it wants for the entire country, regardless of what state B says, simply because state A has more people, and there's nothing state B can do about it since they only make up 
one-eleventh of the population and therefore would always get outvoted. This wouldn't be fair for the people in state B. But in our second scenario, let's assume the legislative powers are divided evenly between the two states so that each state gets equal representation when making laws. If this were the case, state B, the one with only one million people, would have just as much power as state A when it comes to making laws for all 11 million people in the country, even though only a small percentage of the population lives in state B. This wouldn't be fair for the people in state A. As you can see, neither of these scenarios works for everyone. The first scenario favors the state with the larger population, and the second scenario favors the state with the smaller population. The United States faced this same issue when the government was being created. So to compromise between those two scenarios, the legislative powers were divided between the Senate and the House of Representatives in order to balance the interests of both the small states and the large states. Basically, the founders implemented both scenarios from our fictional country when deciding how law should be made. And any new law in the United States has to pass both of those scenarios in order to make it fair for everyone. That's why in the Senate, all states have an equal voice. And in the House of Representatives, states with bigger populations have bigger voices than the smaller states. Make sense? Good. Now, moving on to what the Senate and House of Representatives actually do. As I said before, Congress's primary role in the U.S. government is to make laws. It also has other responsibilities, which we'll get to later in the episode. But let's start off with how laws are made. At a very high level, the Senate and House of Representatives need to agree on a law, and both of them need to vote to approve the law. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Before a law gets passed, it starts as an idea. And ideas for laws can come from anywhere. Members of Congress can think of their own ideas for laws. The president and the executive branch can work with members of Congress to introduce an idea for a law. And sometimes, ideas for laws can even come from suggestions made by people like you and me. Now, when a senator or member of the House of Representatives gets an idea for a law, they can take that idea and write it out into a bill. And a bill is really just a first draft of a law. Before a bill becomes a law, it goes through a lot of steps where the details of what's included in the bill get debated and challenged. And most of the time, bills never become laws because nobody can agree on what to include in them. But sometimes they do. And in the simplest terms, a bill can become a law in one of two ways. The first way is when a member of the House of Representatives proposes a bill. The bill gets reviewed and scrutinized within the House until finally, the members of the House of Representatives vote on whether they think that bill should become a law. If a majority of the members of the House of Representatives vote in favor of the bill, then the bill gets sent to the Senate for a second round of approval. The senators will also vote on whether they think the bill should become a law. And if the Senate approves the same bill by a majority vote, then the bill gets sent to the president for final approval. The second way a bill can become a law is very similar, only the steps in the approval process are reversed. And that's when a member of the Senate proposes a bill. If it happens this way, then the approval process happens in the Senate first, then in the House of Representatives. And if it gets approved by a majority vote in both houses, then the bill gets sent to the president for final approval. You may have noticed that in both scenarios, after the bill gets approved by Congress, it goes to the president for approval. That's because the president gets a final review of the bill before it actually becomes a law. 
During that final review step, the president can either approve the bill or veto it, which is really just a fancy way of saying they can reject it. If the president approves the bill, then it becomes a law. But if the president vetoes the bill, that's not necessarily the end of the road. Congress can still make the bill a law by overriding the president's veto. For that to happen, two-thirds of both the Senate and the House of Representatives need to approve the vetoed bill in order to make it a law. That means 67 out of the 100 senators and 290 out of the 435 members of the House of Representatives will need to vote to approve a vetoed bill in order to override a presidential veto. This last point highlights an important principle that is crucial to the design of the U.S. government, and that is the principle of checks and balances. Now, the term checks and balances gets thrown around a lot when talking about the U.S. government, and sometimes it can be confusing as to what it actually means. So I want to be clear about what checks and balances are. Remember earlier how I said there are three branches of the U.S. government? There's the legislative branch, or Congress, which makes the laws, and we just went over that. Then there's the executive branch, which is also called the Office of the President, which carries out the laws. And finally, there's the judicial branch, or the federal courts, which interpret the law and apply it to real-life scenarios. Checks and balances are just the rules in place that prevent any one branch of government from abusing its power by acting without oversight from the other two branches. In the description earlier, when we talked about presidential veto power, I mentioned two examples of checks and balances. Did you spot them? Take a second to think about it. Ready? The first check on power was the president's ability to veto bills passed by Congress. This represents a check by the president, which is the executive branch, on Congress, which we now know is the legislative branch. By giving the president the power to veto bills, it means that Congress can abuse its power and vote any bill it wants into law, since the president can block a bill by vetoing it. And the second check on power was Congress's ability to override the presidential veto with a two-thirds majority vote in both the House and the Senate. This represents a check by Congress on the president's veto power. If Congress didn't have the ability to override a presidential veto, then the president could abuse their power and reject any bills they wanted for any reason they wanted. If that was the case, the president could essentially block any new laws from going into effect. But since Congress can override the presidential veto, it means that if a bill is considered so important that two-thirds of both houses of Congress approve it, then it will become a law regardless of what the president says. And even if a law goes through all these steps and gets passed, there's still another safeguard built into the system. And that is, the Supreme Court and other federal courts can review the law and declare it unconstitutional in a process known as judicial review, which essentially invalidates the law. Judicial review is another example of the checks and balances built into the U.S. government, and it acts as a check by the judicial branch on both the legislative branch and the executive branch. There are more checks and balances built into the U.S. government, and I'll be sure to mention them as we go through the executive and judicial branches after this short break. Welcome back to World Governments Explained. In this episode, I'm explaining how the United States political system works. We already talked about the legislative powers of Congress, which makes the laws, and we started looking at checks and balances, 
which are the rules that prevent any one branch of government from abusing its power. Next up, we'll discuss the executive branch, and then we'll finish off the episode with the judicial branch. Ah, the executive branch. It's probably the most high-profile part of the U.S. government, and that's because it includes the President of the United States, which is one of the most powerful positions in the world. I mentioned earlier that the role of the executive branch is to carry out or execute the laws made by Congress. It makes sense when you think about it. The executive branch executes the laws, and the Constitution gives the President of the United States the power to do that. I know what you're thinking. The president executes laws? I thought the president ran the country. When I think about executing the law, my mind doesn't go straight to the president of the United States either. My first thought of someone executing the law is sheriffs in the Wild West, riding around on horseback to track down outlaws and bring them to justice. But that's obviously not what the president does. So how does the president go about executing the law? And what does that actually mean? At a high level, it's the ways in which the president organizes the government and implements policies allowed by the law to move the country forward in the way that they think is best for the American people. But before we get into the specifics of that, I want to take a step back and look at how a president gets elected into office. Every four years, eligible American citizens vote for a president to represent them in the government. Unlike other elections, Americans don't vote directly for the president even if it seems like they do when they go to the polls. The reason is that America has an indirect voting process for presidential elections, called an electoral college system. The electoral college system can be a bit confusing, so we're not going to go into all the specifics. But what it means is that there's a group of 538 electors who formally elect the president and vice president. These electors are divided amongst the states, based on the number of representatives each state has in Congress. So the number of electoral votes a state gets is equal to its total number of senators and members of the House of Representatives. Plus, Washington, D.C., which isn't a state, gets three electoral votes. So when Americans cast their votes in a presidential election, what they're really voting for is an elector in the electoral college who subsequently casts a vote for the president and vice president on behalf of the people in the state they represent. I know, it's confusing, right? Basically, Americans vote for someone to cast an electoral college vote on their state's behalf. If a candidate wins the popular vote in a state, generally, they get 100% of that state's electoral votes. And in order to win the presidency, a candidate needs to get at least 270 electoral votes in total. Once that happens, and when the president is sworn into office, they become the chief of the executive branch and can start doing their primary job to execute the laws. As we continue to talk through the executive branch, it's important to remember that the president isn't the only person in the executive branch. It's actually made up of millions of people, including the vice president, the cabinet, employees of federal agencies, members of the military, and many more people. Although, the president does sit at the top of the executive branch and is kind of like the CEO of it. So what can the president actually do? Well, the answer to that is quite a lot. The president has formal powers which are written in the Constitution, and they also have informal powers that aren't in the Constitution but are either implied or inherent with the responsibilities of the role. Honestly, 
It's hard to talk about all the president's powers without just listing them out, which I know is boring and not very fun to listen to. So I tried to break the president's powers into three categories to simplify it. The first category is what I think of as the president's military powers. The second category is the power for the president to organize parts of the government how they want in order to facilitate their policies. And the third category is kind of a catch-all, but it's a group of specific actions the president can take to achieve their policies. Let's start with what I'm calling the military powers. I like to think about these powers separately from the other two categories, because to me, they sort of stand on their own since they relate to things involving the military and diplomacy. And the other two categories of powers relate more to the day-to-day functioning of the government. So what military powers does the president have? The Constitution makes the president the commander-in-chief of the military, and also gives them the power to negotiate treaties with other countries. When I try to understand these powers, I like to think about them in the context of how a war with another country would progress. Not that I want there to be any wars. Just thinking about the timeline of a war helps me to keep these powers in order in my brain. So in order for a war to progress, first, America needs to declare war. Then, after a war is declared, that's when all of the fighting and tactical decisions are made, such as where and when to deploy troops, what strategic operations should be carried out, etc. And finally, when the fighting is all done, America negotiates a treaty with the other country to end the war. So three steps, declare the war, fight the war, then end the war. When we look at that highly simplified timeline of a war, the president is in charge of everything that happens from the time the war is declared up until the point the treaty is ready to be finalized. Again, that's because the Constitution makes the president the commander-in-chief of the military and also gives them the power to negotiate treaties with other countries. There are checks and balances built into the system so the president can't start or end wars. Only Congress can do that. And that's because Congress has the power to declare war and to approve the treaties negotiated by the executive branch. So that's the first category of presidential powers. The other two categories of presidential powers relate to how the executive branch actually enforces the laws in more of the day-to-day. And just to reiterate, I'm defining the other two categories of power as the power to organize parts of the government how the president wants in order to best facilitate their policies and the power to take specific actions to achieve their policies. I'm going to make a sports analogy here to try to contextualize these two categories of presidential powers. So, sorry if you're not a sports person, but here goes. Try to think about the federal government like it's a football team. An American football team, that is. Although, really, any sports team works. And on this team, the president is the coach. Now, The category of powers that allow the president to organize parts of the government, these are similar to how a football coach can decide who to hire as their assistant coaches, which players will start at each position, and what offensive and defensive formations will go into the team's playbook. These are sort of the -the behind-the-scenes decisions that only the coach can make and that help to organize their team in a way that they think will best set them up for victory. And the other category of powers the specific actions a president can take to achieve their policies are sort of like the in-game decisions that a football coach makes when they're trying to win games. They run plays based on how the other team's defense sets up, they decide when to go for it on fourth down, and they can throw the challenge flag when they think the refs get a call wrong. 
These are the on-the-job actions that only the coach can take in order to win games. The president is just like a football coach, only the team they're coaching is the executive branch, and the game they're trying to win is to enforce the laws through their policies. Now, I know the football analogy is fun, at least it is for me because I'm a nerd, but I want to bring it back to reality by going into the specifics about each of these presidential powers. So I'll start with the president's power to organize parts of the government. One way the president organizes the government is by appointing people to jobs in the federal government. This includes positions like foreign ambassadors, ministers, and consuls who help carry out foreign policy. But the most important presidential appointments in the executive branch are the heads of the 15 executive departments that carry out the day-to-day administration of key government areas. These executive departments provide public services to Americans and include, and bear with me here because there's 15 of them, the Department of Agriculture, the Department of Commerce, the Department of Defense, the Department of Education, the Department of Energy, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, the Department of Justice, the Department of Labor, the Department of State, the Department of the Interior, the Department of the Treasury, the Department of Transportation, and the Department of Veterans Affairs. You've probably heard of the heads of these departments before. They get the title of secretary and are referred to as the Secretary of Agriculture, the Secretary of Commerce, the Secretary of... you get the picture. The only exception to that title is that the head of the Department of Justice is called the Attorney General. The 15 people who the president appoints don't just run their executive department. They also become a member of the president's cabinet, along with the vice president. The cabinet is essentially the president's closest advisors and confidants. This is how the president influences much of how the government operates. By selecting their closest advisors to be the heads of each department, the president can choose people who agree with their policies and who they think will deliver on their vision for how the department should be run. One thing to note is that the president can't just pick whoever they want to be the head of an executive department. In order for someone appointed by the president to actually get the job, the Senate must confirm them in a majority vote. This is another example of the checks and balances built into the U.S. government. This check on presidential power by the Senate makes it so that the president can abuse their power by appointing someone unqualified or someone with a conflict of interest to be the head of an executive department. That's the first way the president organizes the government to execute the laws and achieve their policies. Another way is through the executive office of the president. The executive office of the president consists of the core White House staff plus several small agencies. It's headed by the White House chief of staff and assists the president in the conception, implementation, and communication of their policies. I like to think of the executive office of the president as the teams that work together to help the president govern effectively. The executive office of the president includes several departments, some of the most notable being the National Security Council, which helps to advise the president on issues such as national security and intelligence. The White House office, which includes the White House communications and press secretary, who gives briefings on what the president is doing so that the American people and the press can stay informed. And the office of management and budget, which helps prepare the federal budget. An important thing to note is that while the office of management and budget helps prepare the federal budget, Congress ultimately has the power of the purse. So Congress approves the money used to fund any actions of the executive branch, regardless of what the federal budget proposes. This is another example of checks and balances built into the government. 
Congress approves the budget, and only then can the executive branch actually spend the money. Some positions in the executive office of the president, like the head of the Office of Management and Budget, need to get approved by the Senate, just like the heads of the executive departments. But most positions are just hired directly, like any other job. The final way the president can organize part of the government relates to the judicial branch, which we haven't talked about yet. To give a preview, the judicial branch is made up of the federal courts and judges, and they're in charge of deciding the meaning of laws, how to apply them to real situations, and whether a law breaks the rules of the Constitution. We'll get to that more in a bit, but for now, just know that the president's power to organize the government includes the ability to appoint federal judges. This acts as a sort of check on the judicial branch, because by selecting which judges to appoint, the president can influence the direction of the federal courts to make them more conservative or liberal. And just like other presidential appointments, the Senate also needs to confirm the federal judges appointed by the president in a majority vote, which again, is an example of checks and balances. That wraps up what I'm calling the president's power to organize parts of the government to execute the law through their policies. If there's one thing to remember, it's that the president can choose people to do important jobs in different parts of the government. And by doing that, the president can influence how those different parts of the government operate. Now I'll move on to the final category of presidential powers, which are the specific actions that only the president can take to execute the law through their policies. Looking back at our football analogy, these are the powers that are similar to the in-game calls that a coach can make when trying to win games. So what are these specific actions? The first is executive orders. Executive orders are one of the most important powers of the president because they carry much the same weight as a law and don't require congressional approval. So essentially, they allow the president to unilaterally bypass the legislative branch on some things. An executive order is a type of written instruction that presidents issue to federal agencies telling them how to interpret and implement laws. The types of things that a president can do through an executive order include requiring federal agencies to take or stop taking certain actions. Executive orders can also alter policy, change management practices, or accept a delegation of authority. Executive orders have much of the same power as a law, but unlike a law, they only remain in force until they are canceled, revoked, or their terms expire. So when a new president comes into office, a lot of times, they'll cancel or revoke the executive orders issued by the previous president, especially if they're from a different political party. Federal courts can also strike down executive orders that are unconstitutional or exceed the scope of the president's authority. Another type of specific action the president can take is through executive agreements. These are agreements with other countries, usually regarding routine, administrative matters that aren't drastic enough to warrant a formal treaty. They don't require the two-thirds approval from Congress like treaties do, which makes them easier to pass. An example of an executive agreement is NAFTA, or the North American Free Trade Agreement. Other specific actions the president can take include the power to call Congress into special session and adjourn Congress if the House and the Senate cannot agree on a final date, the power to receive foreign ambassadors, and the power to make a State of the Union address on an annual basis. As you can see, the president has a lot of power. A final point I want to make about the president's powers is that they've been expanding over time. For example, remember how I said that as a check on presidential power, only Congress can declare war? Well, 
As commander-in-chief of the military, the president has the inherent power to use troops, even if Congress hasn't formally declared war. The logic of this is that if there was ever an emergency threat and Congress didn't have the time or opportunity to formally declare a war, then the president would need to move troops fast without Congress's permission. The problem with this, though, is how do you limit this power? Congress hasn't formally declared a war since 1942, but presidents have used their power as commander-in-chief to send troops to Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq. After Vietnam, Congress tried to check the president's power by requiring the president to get congressional authorization to use troops within 60 days of when they're first committed. If not, the president needs to bring the troops back. While this seems like a strong check on presidential power, in reality, it hasn't been. That's because Congress has always authorized the president's actions within the 60-day window. Ah, that was a lot. Before we move on to the judicial branch, there's probably one question you've been asking yourself as I went on and on about the president. And that is, what does the vice president do? And it's a good question. In reality, the vice president doesn't really have many formal responsibilities or powers. Their most important role is to take over as president if the president dies, is incapacitated, or gets removed from office. The vice president also acts as the tie-breaking vote if a Senate vote results in a deadlock. And that's about it as far as formal duties go. Now, obviously that's not all the vice president does. I mentioned that they're part of the president's cabinet along with the 15 heads of executive departments, which sort of underscores the vice president's role as an advisor and confidant of the president. The informal roles and responsibilities really vary depending on the relationship between the president and the vice president. A lot of times, their job includes tasks such as drafter and spokesperson for the administration's policies, advisor to the president, and being a symbol of American concern or support. Now, last but not least, we move on to the judicial branch of the U.S. government. At a very high level, the judicial branch is the system of federal courts and judges in the United States. I talked about the judicial branch a few times during the episode and how its role is to interpret laws and apply them to real-life scenarios. So how the courts and judges do that is by hearing court cases to determine if any actions violate the Constitution or other federal laws. I'm going to go through how it does that in more detail, but first, I want to look at how it's structured. Like I just mentioned, the judicial branch is the system of federal courts and judges that hear and make decisions on legal cases, and there are three levels of federal courts. The highest level is the Supreme Court, which is the most powerful. The Supreme Court is established by the Constitution and consists of nine judges, called justices. Below the Supreme Court are the U.S. Courts of Appeals, and below those are the U.S. District Courts. These two lower-level courts are not formally specified or required by the Constitution. Instead, the Constitution gives Congress the power to establish the lower courts, and this is how Congress has set them up. Okay, so we have three levels of federal courts, but what does each level actually do? Most people start that discussion off by talking about the Supreme Court because it's the most powerful. But I want to change it up a bit and start with the lowest level of court, then work our way up. The reason I like to do it that way is because if you were involved in a federal court case, your case wouldn't go straight to the Supreme Court. First, 
Your case would have to go through the two lower levels before the Supreme Court would even consider hearing your case. So that's how we're going to move through them. Let's start off with district courts. These are the general trial courts of the federal government. What that means is that the judges in district courts try cases and decide questions of the law. They have jurisdiction over both criminal and civil cases. And for the most part, the types of cases they hear are ones where the United States is a party in the case, cases involving violations of the Constitution or federal law, crimes committed on federal land, and bankruptcy cases. District courts also hear cases based on state law that involve parties from different states. Okay, so once your case is heard by a district court and the judge makes a ruling, that's it. Case closed. The decision is final, right? Not exactly. The decisions of district courts can be brought to the courts of appeals, which are also called appellate courts. Appealing a case is basically just challenging the decision made by the district court. A decision can't be appealed just because you don't like the outcome. An appeal is allowed when the losing side has issues with how the trial proceeded, the law that was applied in the decision, or how the law was applied. Appellate courts operate under a system of mandatory review, which means that they must hear all valid appeals from the lower courts. I want to highlight an important difference in what a trial looks like in a district court compared to an appellate court. A district court trial is probably the kind you imagine from watching movies and TV shows, where witnesses give testimony and a judge or jury decides who is guilty or not guilty. The appellate courts, on the other hand, don't retry cases or hear new evidence. They don't hear witnesses testify, and there is no jury. What they do is review the procedures and the decision of the district court to make sure the proceedings were fair and the proper law was applied correctly. Then, the district court's decision is either upheld or overturned. Okay, so if a case goes through the district court, gets appealed, and then gets heard by the court of appeals, in all likelihood, the appellate court's decision is final, and that's the end of the road. Although, the appellate court's decision can be challenged, which brings us to the Supreme Court. When an appellate court's decision is challenged, it has the potential to be heard by the Supreme Court although there's no guarantee that will happen. In fact, the chances of that happening are very slim. Unlike the appellate courts, which have a mandatory review of appeals, the Supreme Court has what's called discretionary review. This means the Supreme Court justices get to decide what cases are heard by the Supreme Court. Each year, literally thousands of appellate court decisions are petitioned to be heard by the Supreme Court, but less than 2% of those cases actually make it in front of the Supreme Court. That's because four out of the nine justices must vote to accept a case in order for it to be heard. As the highest court in the land, the Supreme Court is the court of last resort for those seeking justice. Once the Supreme Court makes a decision in a case, it can only be changed by a later Supreme Court decision or if Congress changes or amends the law. A final thing to note is that the president has the ability to pardon people who are convicted of federal crimes, which is a check by the president on the judicial branch. And that wraps up the structure of the judicial branch and some of the logistics on how it works. But just talking through how the judicial branch is organized doesn't fully do it justice, pun intended. The judicial branch has another power, and I touched on this power earlier when I talked about the legislative and executive branches. 
That's because as a check on those two branches, the judicial branch has what's called the power of judicial review. Judicial review is when the actions of either Congress or the executive branch are subject to review by the judiciary. So when I talked earlier about how Congress makes laws and how the president can do things like issue executive orders to federal agencies telling them how to interpret and implement laws, through the judicial review process, the judicial branch can invalidate laws, acts, and other governmental actions that it deems unconstitutional. The judicial review is another example of the checks and balances built into the U.S. government, since the judicial branch can ensure that the actions of the legislative and executive branches don't violate the Constitution. And that wraps up our analysis of the judicial branch. A final check on power that I haven't mentioned yet is that Congress has the power to perform oversight and investigation of the other two branches. What this does is allow the Senate and House of Representatives to look into the actions and conduct of the executive and judicial branches. And the purpose of this power is to prevent waste and fraud, to protect civil liberties and individual rights, to ensure executive compliance with the law, evaluate executive performance, and finally, it allows them to gather information for making laws and educating the public. As a result of their investigations and oversight duties, Congress can impeach members of the executive and judicial branches. The Constitution gives Congress the authority to impeach and remove the president, the vice president, and all civil officers of the United States upon determination that they have engaged in treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And with that, we've talked through all three branches of the U.S. government. What I want to do now is take a minute and try to bring the episode full circle and tie it all together. We started off by discussing Congress as the legislative branch and how it makes laws. Then we moved on to the executive branch and how the president enforces the laws as they organize and run the day-to-day -day functioning of the government. Finally, we focused on the judicial branch and how it interprets and applies the laws to real life scenarios. It's hard not to think about the three branches of government in silos as we talk through them and what they do. But the interplay between the branches of government is really what's fascinating about it. All three branches of government simultaneously go about their business and do things that affect the other branches of government. But the checks and balances built into the system act as safeguards that ensure everything runs smoothly and no one branch of government can get too much power. With that, we've talked through how the U.S. government works in less than an hour. I know some of the things we talk through can be confusing, and we move through everything pretty quickly. Plus, some people are visual learners. So to accompany this episode, I've put together a diagram that summarizes everything I explained in the episode. A link to the diagram is available in the episode details or on our website at worldgovs.com. That's worldgovs.com. So if you're interested, please check it out. The website also has more information about the podcast and links to stream other episodes will be posted when they're available. So thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of World Governments Explained. Next episode, I'll explain how the political system of the United Kingdom works. Follow or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts to get the latest episodes and learn more about other countries' political systems. And if you enjoyed the show, please rate us and leave a review. Have a great week.